0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof podcast. Episode number three, Mary Fan, Justice Visualized. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Mary Pham. Mary is the Henry M. Jackson Professor of Law at the University of Washington School of Law. Her interests are in criminal law and procedure, evidence, privacy, and immigration. Prior to joining the Academy, Mary worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of California and the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal. Mary's article is entitled Justice Visualized and is forthcoming in the UC Davis Law Review. It examines a technological development that has been much in the news lately and that has the potential to revolutionize the process of legal proof, body cameras worn by police officers. Mary's article takes an early look at what body cameras might do to the proof process and to the criminal justice system more generally. Mary, it's a pleasure to have you on Excited Utterance.
1: Delight to be here. Thanks for having me, Ed.
0: Let's talk about police body cameras, which feature prominently in your article. Can you give us a sense of how popular they've become among police departments in this country?
1: It's really been a dramatic, what I think of as a cultural revolution among police departments. In our survey, the departments serving the 100 largest cities in the United States We identified at least 88 of those 100 either have adopted or will be deploying body cameras shortly. And the data is similar with other surveys from other kinds of samples as well. It's been a dramatic shift.
0: What are the policies with regard to those cameras? Clearly, they're not going to be on all the time, or are they?
1: the policies are still very much in gestation and subject to intense contestation with a lot of different interests at stake. When we coded the policies from these departments in our sample, we found that the vast majority have adopted what we think of as a limited discretion model. And what that means is cameras are required to be on during specified types of encounters, So discretion to turn on and off is limited by these rules. And then with respect to what we call a continuous recording, which is cameras on at basically almost all times, except with very, very limited exceptions, for example, bathroom breaks. That has not been wildly popular. Only a very small minority of the departments have adopted this approach, and you can understand why. There are privacy interests at stake for officers and also for us, members of the public, victims, potential complaining witnesses as well.
0: Given those concerns about privacy, both on the police side and the citizen side, what's driven the influx of the body cameras and who in fact supports them?
1: There has been a major shift in terms of trust in the police Ferguson has been a watershed moment for policing and for public consciousness about the challenges and human costs of policing. It's not so long ago in practice, judges, juries, members of the public would tend to take the officer's word for what actually happened. And now that's not the case anymore. There's been a massive erosion in trust. And so police departments are starting to realize and line-level officers are even starting to realize that it is for self-protection as well to have cameras on recording what actually happened.
0: So the support has been broad-based, so it's both police and citizens?
1: The support varies among officers depending on whether the officer is a line-level officer out in the street. The person who will actually be wearing the body camera at all times Versus supervisors and chiefs. At a policy level, and certainly at an evidentiary level, there are a lot of benefits to having body cameras. But, you know, line level officers will vary in their views. It was not until very recently that, frankly, line level officers were very opposed. And you can imagine why whatever line of work you do, imagine having to wear a body camera at almost all times or having to observe a set of rules that say turn on, turn off, turn on, turn off throughout the course of the day. This is something that certainly officers have objected to, but now they realize seeing what happens when there is no camera and the protests and the investigations and the risk of being on suspension or losing a job. That has turned even line level officers around and certainly the public It's fascinating, after the killings of persons of color by police officers, there have been sharp divergences by race in the interpretation of the rightness or wrongness of those uses of force. However, much more convergence, regardless of race, on the desire for body cameras.
0: One of the really interesting things that you bring up in the introduction of your paper are the psychological, or maybe you might term them sociological effects, of bringing on the body cameras. Could you tell us a little bit more about those scientific studies?
1: Yeah, so there's promising data about the benefits of the use of body cameras. Promising data coming out of, for example, the Phoenix Police Department, the Mesa Police Department, and one of the most cited studies is out of the Rialto Police Department, And they're promising, they're suggesting that the complaints against officers declined significantly and the use of force by officers deploying body cameras declined compared to a control group of officers who are using the standard practice of no body cameras. Certainly, larger scale, more generalizable studies are needed, particularly for large urban departments. And so a lot more work needs to be done, but so far the results are promising.
0: Your article focuses on the transformative effect that the body cameras will likely have on the legal process, particularly with respect to criminal procedure questions. Will this be any different than how cell cameras and other kinds of surveillance have changed policing and trials generally? How are body cameras different?
1: Body cameras are different in several respects in the court public opinion, that's where cell phone cameras have played an increasingly important role, but it's not systematic. It's just the vagaries of whether or not there's someone there who had the courage to record in stressful situations. Whereas body cameras will be subject to policies that will make it systematic in terms of what events are recorded and when. It's not just the luck of the draw if there happens to be a citizen capturing something on camera. There'll be rigorous train of custody and other procedural requisites that will ensure admissibility in court so that it has legal relevance and not just public opinion relevance. Actually, a lot of the video evidence before body cameras was dash cameras, and the article shows some examples of the difference that the body camera makes. A dash camera misses a lot of the details that actually legally matter, whereas body cameras capture things up close. You can see whether or not, for example, was it really so that when people were pulled over, a bag of drugs just happened to be on the lap of the motorists, or did something else happen? Body cameras be up close enough to answer those questions. Was the suspect dashing towards the officer, holding a weapon, or was the suspect doing something else? I think that up-close vantage point will give us much more legally relevant detail.
0: So what does this mean for courts? If you have body cameras being used pervasively, what should courts be doing in response to the new phenomenon?
1: I argue for a couple of things, uh, depending on the level of court. With respect to the trial courts that are considering search and seizure suppression motions, video evidence should be a regular part of review where facts are contested, as they often are in these search and seizure suppression hearings. Right now, what the judge hears in this context is very much shaped by the officer's recollection as memorialized in a police report. You know, a report is a summary of what happened, and it's a summary by an officer who's memorializing relevant evidence and relevant events from the law enforcement perspective. And while this captures a lot of important detail, it may leave out detail that might be not in a cynical way. I'm not alleging wrongdoing, but I'm just saying it's just necessarily so that a summary leaves out information that the defense might find very important. Body camera evidence can give a wider field of vision in terms of what happened on the ground. And so I think that it should be a regular thing that's consulted. Especially in a criminal justice context where you often only hear one side because the defendant has a lot of reasons not to take the stand and testify, waive the Fifth Amendment privilege against compelled self-incrimination, and open the door to a lot of other things. So it offers at least some other account besides the officer's account.
0: Let me ask you this. I think there's no doubt that the presence of this video evidence is going to change how courts deal with criminal procedure motions. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that how they're going to handle the video evidence is as they would if it came from any other source. Is there anything particular about the body camera that courts should be doing? One of the things that I'm reminded of in your article is you suggest that courts should inquire into violations of a mandatory recording policy. Perhaps you can say a little bit more about that.
1: So right now policies and procedures are in flux and courts have an important role to play in ensuring that the promise benefits of having body cameras in place are actually realized. Part of that is inquiry when the video is missing. So if footage is regularly consulted, and I should note that even across this nation, there may, even when it comes to, for example, dash camera footage, it depends on the jurisdiction. But some jurisdictions, it's not a regular practice to get the dash cam footage. The defense attorney has to request it. It has to be produced and then submitted. And so I think that where having body camera recordings of a wider range of encounters is fast becoming a reality, it should, first of all, be regularly introduced or consulted. And then where it's missing, courts should inquire as a nudge to make sure that policies are actually observed and that this actually becomes a regular practice and not a selective practice where it benefits one side. But I also argue that it shouldn't be a punitive stick that basically becomes a deterrent against departments adopting body cameras because it's a delicate thing. There is no requirement to adopt body cameras. And if it becomes too costly... As an evidentiary matter, as well as a financial matter, departments may well stop this movement.
0: I think this issue that you raise has very interesting theoretical underpinnings. On one hand, there's the principle that the evidence is the evidence. So as long as there's no spoliation, as long as the police officer is not deleting video, it's not clear what the ground is for inquiry. On the other hand... There's something of an age-old question here about adverse inferences that you might be able to draw by the failure to produce evidence. I think from the toxic tort context, this idea that when a manufacturer doesn't do studies, then perhaps you're hiding something. And I think that's the inference that you're suggesting that judges make.
1: That's excellent. I am taking notes right now. This article is in draft form, and I think that's a wonderful analogy. And yes, I did mean it in terms of inferences. And I'm actually thinking back to experience. When I was a prosecutor, it was not at all the regular practice to videotape interrogations for many of our partner law enforcement agencies. So you would go to trial and it would be a confession case. The jury would have to take the officer's word for it because the officer would go on the stand and testify as the defendant's words. And so the main avenue of defense attack was, well, the officer is lying, or making it up, or coerced the confession. And for many, many reasons, for the perceptions of justice to rebut these claims, it was really important to actually have videotaped interrogations, because the defense would say, and why is there no evidence? All you have is the officer testifying. So it became well known that it was our policy as an office to inquire before we took a case that the law enforcement agency videotaped the interrogation. And when we did case intake, we would actually inquire, is there a videotape or is there not? And because it was so well known that that was our policy in the district, in the Southern District of California, it really did change law enforcement practices. When a case actually was going to the suppression hearing stage or to trial, and there was no video for whatever reason, the defense attorney would say, why is there no video? And there would actually be inquiry, and it would be for reasons of inference. Don't you usually videotape? Why didn't you videotape in this case? Et cetera, et cetera. And so that was what I was envisioning, but I love the analogy and making it explicit. Thank you.
0: The other issue you raise, and I think I had cut you off when you were moving to it, is appellate review and the importance of video at the appellate review level. You suggest that many courts, in fact, don't even want to have the video as part of the appellate record because it feels like fact finding. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on the rationale if you can even discern one from the appellate courts for this attitude toward the video, and what you think normatively appellate courts should do about the video.
1: Sure, we as lawyers, and certainly courts, especially appellate courts, it's the primacy of paper. So when to review the record, it's all reviewing paper, transcripts, et cetera. Part of it's simply the foreignness of audiovisual evidence that leads to conflicting approaches. So sometimes a video even where viewed or admitted below just doesn't even get transmitted on appeal to the appellate court. So there's simply that practical aspect. And then there's a sort of a deeper aspect as well, which is the sense that, well, if I'm well equipped to interpret paper, but when I look at the video, there's a sense that I am finding things anew. And it's this odd sort of lack of comfort with this other medium. When you're interpreting paper, you're also interposing your interpretations of that paper record. But there just seems to be a lack of comfort, the sense that just by viewing the video, I'm finding the facts again rather than reviewing for clear error. And so there's a sense of I'm fact-finding. There's a sense of also who has the burden of changing practices now that we have more audiovisual evidence. So some courts simply say, well, the parties didn't designate it as part of the record, so we're not going to go and get the video. And so almost putting the burden on the parties rather than as a court saying, we want to be able to make our decision on the full palette of information admitted below.
0: Let me turn to one final area. You talk a bit about how we need to be cautious in interpreting video. Why is that? And why should we be concerned about what really appears quite facially to be evidence that people can process directly?
1: So precisely because it seems so accessible, it seems like it is the guardian of truth, that there it is, it's unbiased, it's there for me to see, and we're not as well equipped to parse images, to understand that how the camera is pointing, for example, will subtly shape our perceptions. There's been studies about perceptions of voluntariness, largely in the interrogation context, because that's been the main context where we've had recording to date. And if you point the camera directly at the subject, the defendant, that is, it creates this greater impression of voluntariness, of agency, because they're looking directly at the camera or close-ups versus far-ups and the perspective that the camera takes. All this subtly shapes our interpretation without us realizing it, whereas we're much better equipped to understand how our perceptions are being manipulated with other sources of evidence, such as testimony.
0: Can we address this problem by using jury instructions, or are there other presentation methods that you want to use to fix this problem?
1: The Jury instructions is a great idea, but I think, honestly, jury instructions are so long and dull right at the end of the case. I think if video is a key evidence in the case. Sometimes some expert testimony may be useful to help educate the fact finder. So it could be jury instructions. It could be, depending on the complexity of the issue and the centrality of the video evidence, it could also be expert testimony.
0: A final question before we wrap this up, I want to extend this idea beyond the criminal procedure context. So in other words, away from police behavior and to actual defendant behavior. Do you have predictions on how body cameras and other technologies, like cell phones and the like, will change the process of proof at trial? And what further research do you think needs to be done by legal academics to prepare for those changes?
1: Those are big and important questions, a future research agenda in this vein. A couple of things. So I'll, I'll take the first part of the question, which is the impact on the public. There is a hypothesis that needs to be further examined. It's a very important one for safety in our society which is that body cameras also exert what's been called a civilizing effect, not just on police officers, but on the public. Frankly, both sides are escalating an encounter. And the idea is if there's a sense of you're on video, that everybody has an incentive to de-escalate the situation. and, And that needs to be explored more. And if there is such an effect, how do you maximize the effect through positioning, through notice, et cetera, to really realize the full benefits of this? Really, it's, I think, a public health and safety intervention. And then with respect to how it'll change what happens in courts, there's a lot of important research yet to be done. A lot of the studies thus far with respect to subtle shaping when it comes to fact-finding and applying the law has been in the context of videotape interrogations and not in the rich myriad contexts that body cameras will capture. And as we move into a society where so much relevant conduct in a case, whether it be criminal or not, is now on video somewhere by someone, I think there's a lot of research to be done in general in how jurors interpret and are subtly shaped by audiovisual evidence and how this may impact the outcome, how it leads to discounting of other sources of evidence, whether or not it's given undue primacy, there's so many rich and important questions to explore as we become a society where, frankly, everything is recorded by someone somewhere.
0: On that note, thanks, Mary, for being on the show and for raising this fascinating issue. I'm sure that we will hear a lot more about it from you and others going forward. Thanks so much, Ed. For centuries, the primary lens that courts and juries have had into past events has been the eyewitness a source that has been much maligned of late. Today, video evidence increasingly supplements, or in many cases supplants, eyewitness testimony. Mary's article focuses on videos in the criminal procedure context, but if you think about it, the power of video extends far beyond that to all aspects of the proof process. For me, one of the most interesting aspects of this issue is the delicate and tricky trade-offs that we as a society face. As with most video evidence, body cameras have many benefits. Not only do they provide key evidence, which promotes accuracy, but as Mary mentioned, they promote greater civility and professionalism. At the same time, they are undoubtedly a threat to privacy and inhibit expression, values also long cherished in American society. Navigating this balance will be the challenge that scholars like Mary will have going forward. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Excited Utterance is sponsored in part through a grant from the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Nunn. I'm your host, Ed Chen, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.